Our scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and also in verse 11. And it says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. In Him... We haven't obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, uh, falling in love um, can actually take you to the strangest of places. But, you know, there's one destination where anyone who's ever been swept up in that thought that they do, they love me too. There's one destination that I find curious. And that is when you'll know when someone has completely lost themselves uh, in the thought of another person's love, when they start to write really bad poetry. Poetry which I shall now inflict upon you from my various pop artists from my lifetime. Let's begin with the great uh, Dan Fogelberg, God rest his soul. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean higher than any bird ever flew, longer than there have been stars up in the heavens, I've been in love with you. Or perhaps from Soundgarden, I think I found my way home. I know that might sound, I know that it might sound more than a little crazy, but I believe I knew I loved you before I met you. I think I dreamed you into life. I knew I loved you before I met you. I have been waiting all my life. Or perhaps Coco Lee in, in the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon soundtrack, who says, If the years take away every memory that I have, I would still know the way that would lead me back to your side. The North Star may die, but the light that I see in your eyes will burn there always by the love that we have shared before time. Did you hear the running theme coming through those? Over and over again, there are people who, when they experience the intensity of newfound love, begin to talk about that love as if it existed before they even met each other. That it was before time. And so here's my question for you this morning. How do you account for that? An almost universal experience to want to elevate our romance to the transcendent, to the metaphysical. You know, when I was a campus minister, I had a chance to coach a lot of college guys uh, through their engagement uh, experience. And I tried to warn them. I said, there's going to come a moment of extraordinary anxiety at the very moment when you're on your knee and you're trying to focus and actually ask the question, I remember my own, I've never been more nervous that moment, even when I had a relative degree of security about what the answer was that was coming. Why was I shaking? Look, the feeling of having someone pledge themselves to you for a life (laughs) is so enrapturing that you can't help but like search for meaning of places outside of time outside of logic, outside of rationality. Why is that? Well, my submission to you this morning is that we do that because of that universal sensation that human beings were built to know that kind of love. We long for it so badly that we mistake our earthly marriages for something that only God can actually be the author of. Look again at verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul (laughs) has just uncorked, I mean, an eye-poppingly flattering truth that any Christian could ever fathom. God loved you before he made you. 
God chose you before you were born. His love for you is not based on anything that you ever did or ever could do, but purely upon his own free choice. And of course, just in case you missed it in verse 4, he says it in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. Literally, that word means to pick out, to choose out for oneself. Look, if you're just joining us this morning, we're working through a topic of the blessings that are afforded to God's redeemed people, what we call the church. And we've come now to the doctrine of predestination, the P word, if you will. And I've only been preaching here for about a year and a half, but if you've noticed, whenever we've come to this topic, I've done a little bit of skimming over it and tried to take the big view of it. The reason is because I knew we were going to be here this morning. This is what we need to dive into, though, and figure out exactly what it is that has gotten Paul so excited about and that has, quite frankly, caused a fair amount of controversy and people being somewhat upset by it. But my ultimate point throughout this discussion is that deep inside the recesses of your own heart that really only surface when you fall deeply in love with somebody is a place that wants for this doctrine to be true. Why? Well, let's dive into why. I want to cover that question with three topics. I want to look at the doctrine, first of all, get clear on that. Secondly, I want to look at the objections people often raise towards it. And then thirdly and finally, the blessings that we accrue from it. So let's look at the doctrine, first of all. It's really important at the outset to establish the fact that the Bible says a lot on this topic. And if you don't understand that, you understand why it is that theologians have formulated the doctrine the way in which they have. And the first thing to note is it's everywhere. I mean, three times in our own chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul either refers to the word or, refers, or, or, or the meaning of the word. Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us this unbreakable chain of salvation and lists predestination as the origin of why we are Christians. 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about being chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father even saying a few verses later that the choice was made before the creation of the world. In Acts chapter 2, Peter mentions that Jesus was delivered, quote, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Colossians 3 refers to Christians as God's chosen people. Galatians chapter 1, Paul talks about being set apart from his mother's womb. John 15 says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Finally, in Revelation 13, we read about the lamb that was slain, but then John adds, from the beginning of the world. Now, here's the, and that, honestly, that's just a sampling. We could keep going. But my hope is, is that you see the point. This doctrine, this idea, is unavoidable for anyone who wants to take the Bible seriously. Because throughout its pages, there's this insistence coming from the hearts of every believing person that God chose me before I was ever born, before I ever did anything for that matter. Therefore, theologians have made attempts to sort of summarize, create formulations about what it means uh, for a person uh, to, to see themselves as being chosen by God. Uh, I chose my favorite from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our denomination's uh, uh, theological foundation. If you go to chapter 3, section 5, it says this. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel of his good pleasure and will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love, 
without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, or anything in the creature as to conditions or causes that might move him to do it, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Now look, there's about five or six sermons in that one thing that I'm not going to spare you of this morning. But I want you to get one takeaway from, this, from that passage. Paul is overjoyed at the thought that before he could think, he was thought of. Before he could love, he was loved. And, and most crucially, this love was set upon him even though God knew that he would not be lovable. N- notice, the passage says that we were chosen to be holy and blameless. The implication, of course, is that since his choosing was to make us this way, he knew that we would not be either. Quite the contrary. We would be quite corrupt and quite blameworthy. Which I think really is the real beauty of this doctrine, isn't it? Because most people, most people when they're told that they're loved, you might actually have a little moment of thinking to yourself, maybe I am lovable. But see, here's the thing. When God's love shows up, it goes so far beyond that. He loved us even when he saw what we were capable of. In other words, it's not, it's not proper to call God's love for his people uh, unconditional, even though that's true. It's more proper to say that it's contra-conditional. It's the opposite of what you would think in, that, in the midst of that. But here's my point. This is what the poets are writing about when they sing songs about being loved before time. <laughs> that is, we all long for a love that is its own justification, for a love that won't be surprised when we, when, by our failure to live up to it. This realization sort of led me to my favorite quote from J.I. Packer's Knowing God, my favorite books of all time, and my favorite quote. He says, there's a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point upon prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. (laughs) Yeah, relief indeed. There's a flood of security that comes when you embrace this doctrine. But more on that in just a minute. My guess, though, is that some of you are probably already dealing with a few questions. So let's dive into the second point, which is the classic objections that people offer against this doctrine. I've got three of them here. I mean, frankly, we could do a whole series talking about these things, but truthfully, even though I don't get to everybody's question, my hope is, is that giving you a sampling might cause you to dive into the text yourself. Maybe jump into one of our small groups that we offer here at the church to try to dig into it yourself. Let's deal with the first one. The first objection goes a little bit like this. Okay, Les, okay. Don't you mean that God has what we might say foreknowledge of the things that are to come, right? And the objection usually kind of says this. It's like, look, election and predestination simply mean that God sort of looked out throughout the corridors of time and he saw people believing in him then. And on the basis of seeing that, he then elects them or predestines them. But of course, that doesn't mean that he caused that faith to appear. This probably is the most popular objection that's raised against this. But actually, there's some significant problems with it. The first of which strikes me is that conception is a little bit redundant. If someone's going to believe in God anyway, what's the purpose of electing them and predestinating them if they're already going to believe? 
But the second one, and this is a little more, this is a little more subtle, is that ends up invariably pitting God's power over and against his knowledge. Bear with me for a second. How is it that God can say for certain that he knows that someone is going to believe in him in the future if it's not going to happen by his power? You can't separate God's knowing of the future from his power that makes the future certain the way that it is. Why is the future definitely going to turn out that way? Because he's the one making it that way. That's how he can be certain his knowledge there are together. So now predestination is a whole lot more than just foreknowledge, first of all. But secondly, the next objection, people will say this, like, whoa, 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 whoa. So do you mean then that, like, you don't believe in free will? Now look, once you uncork that little phrase, you jump into one of the most controversial words, really, in this, for this upcoming generation, and that is the word freedom. There's a generation rising up for whom freedom is the highest cultural value. And what they mean by freedom is simply this. It is a decision that is made without any factors that are influencing that choice. Okay? But here's my question back to that. Is there really any such choice? Look, human beings are preference-living machines. We live on the basis of our desires. And guess what? Those desires have been, ready for it, influenced. Influenced by my background, by my experiences, by my rationality, by, or my lack thereof, whatever. The question is, we shouldn't not be talking so much about the freedom of the will, but rather talking about the ability of the will. And as it turns out, the Bible is far more preoccupied with that question than it is about free will. Because the Bible nowhere portrays human beings as if we are robots, It everywhere portrays us as being slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to Satan's deceptions. The Bible's view of our choices is that in ourselves we are incapable of wanting what's best for us. Incapable. The human heart seeks no good thing, Paul says. The Bible says that, 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 that the natural mind is hostile towards God. This is the reason why the great reformers would not talk about the freedom of the will. They would talk about the bondage of the will. And what does my will in bondage do? To my own evil desires. Which brings me to the third one. Because now people put the pieces together and say, well, okay, so if God is really in charge of this, this makes it sound like salvation is really unfair. And I get that objection, but, but bear with me for just a second. And I want to try to state this carefully. I do think it needs to be said that if... If, if this, the idea of this doctrine is so utterly repellent to you and utterly foreign to you, you may need to revisit some questions about really what it means to be a Christian at all. Now, you did not hear me say that if you don't believe in predestination, you're not a Christian. I did not say that. Don't call me about that question. What I do mean to say is, if someone comes up to you and says, or if I come to you and say, let me ask you, did you do something to earn your salvation to God? He would say with everyone else, absolutely not. But what happens is, is when you put that little conviction in front of the doctrine of predestination, let me tell you what it begins to uproot. It begins to uproot a sense of the fact that maybe that helplessness that I professed at my conversion, maybe it was a little bit of lip service. And actually, there really is still some self-righteousness lingering inside of me. Look, for someone who is really a Christian, something has shaken you. 
There's been something done to you. And that salvation is only unfair if everybody deserves to get it. The illustration breaks down, but I heard one pastor use one that I thought was helpful. He said, imagine that you are in your living room and you're with five of your friends. And those five friends decide that they're going to go out and rob a bank. And they start to rush for the door. But as they rush for the door, you're able to club two of them over the head, drag them back into the house, and bind them up until they come to their senses, which you do. The other three, though, go to the bank, rob the bank, accidentally kill a guard, are arrested, sent to jail, and on death row. So you go to visit those people, and they look at they say to you, this is unfair. You're the one who put us here. Now look, some of you philosophers out there are kind of, wait, wait, that doesn't work. I get it. Why doesn't he club everybody over the head? I get it. But at least it sets it in the proper context, doesn't it? When all of a sudden all we had was spiritual treachery on the brain, the question becomes not why is everybody made a Christian. The question is why is anybody made a a Christian? Be very careful about when we start to say that this doctrine makes it unfair. So look, that's the doctrine. Those are some of the objections. There's probably more. But I want to move on to the third point, which is the idea of the blessings that are inherent here. Because one of the problems, I think, of going through all these objections is invariably it tends to cast the conversation about the doctrine in terms that are contrary to the tone of the text, right? Remember, Paul is talking about the blessings that have been afforded to God's people in Christ. So if you start out kind of being defensive about the doctrine, you miss the beauty here. What, what are the innumerable blessings that come from God's sovereignty? I, I, can, I want to list just at least two for us this morning. First, I think this doctrine is the only way in which you're really ever going to become secure of your salvation. 25 years of pastoral ministry is what I'm up to at this point. And I can tell you that one of the most popular questions that people wrestle with is, how do I know? How do I know if I really am a Christian, if I'm really saved? It's the top of the list for people's concerns. But I've also come to believe that part of the reason for that insecurity and the reason why it's so prevalent is because we've ignored this doctrine. What do I mean? Well, think about it. If your relationship to God rests essentially on your choice of Him, I I would go to say that you'll never actually have a foundation where you can truly say, I am his and he is mine. Why? Well, because of the, of the insecurity of that situation. I, I used to ask freshmen this all the time in campus ministry. I would start out by saying, look, if you this morning assume yourself and, uh, to be in good relationship with God, you and God are A-OK. Hey, nobody's perfect, but we're good on the basics, right? Me and God. Why do you assume that to be the case? If you come and answer to me, well, the reason why is because when I was younger, I was on a youth retreat, or I had this crisis moment in my life, uh, and I prayed this prayer, and I asked Jesus into my heart, and that's when I became a Christian. So I played the devil's advocate, and I'm like, really? Well, so if that's the reason why you're a Christian, how do you know that you were sincere in that prayer? Really sincere. To which the answer comes back, well, because at that moment, I really repented of my sins. I mean, I turned away from a lot of the stuff that I was doing before, never to look back at it again. And I'll say, okay, okay, okay. Um, But how do you know that you repented with with good motives? To which you could respond and say, well, look, 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 look. 
you don't understand, it was a powerfully emotional moment for me. I, I've never experienced the passion that I had in that moment. Then I'll respond to you with like, so you've never been fooled by your own emotions before? <clears throat> Look, you see the point? There is a universal truth that any relationship that depends upon your sincerity or your beauty <clears throat> or your effort or your faithfulness, it's always going to be unstable. And by the way, yes, I'm talking about our marriages here too. Why else would we wear this ring constantly? Right? Other than to reassure me that the love that we have between each other is not based on the fickle sands of my changing looks or my personality or my preferences, whatever. No, the, the, the whole point of the ring is to root our relationship in something that doesn't change. Namely, the promise that we make. We made a promise. We stood up on a stage in tuxedos and dresses with a minister, looked and said, make a promise. And the essence of that promise was to say that it is beyond my feelings. I didn't fall out of love <laughs> because the pledge you make on that day is beyond your feelings. It has nothing to do with your feelings. Right? <laughs> Look, you can only have security in any relationship if the glue of that friendship is outside of you. That's my premise. For Christians, therefore, we root our relationship with God in His eternal purposes. That's the reason why we sing, O oh, love that will not let me go, because that's what the whole relationship is based upon. Is due to his effort. Am I really going to give myself credit for this? And look, I've talked to enough people who've encountered this doctrine and been like, this makes me afraid. I don't like it. Because what if that means that God chose other people but not me? And if I'm not one of the ones that, that, that's been chosen, then basically I'll never have a chance. It's the same kind of objection people say, well, what about those that God didn't choose? I mean, what chance would they ever have? Hey, by the way, do you know that the Bible actually asks that exact question in Romans chapter 9, verse 19? Paul says, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, look, I'm not guaranteeing you're going to like his answer that he gives you in the very next verse, but take some assurance at the fact that the Bible poses this question with you and for you. But look, the truth is, God deals with us as individuals when it comes to this doctrine. That's the point. And what I think we need, we need to avoid is short-circuiting the joy that comes here by getting hung up on other people's salvation. Or you know what? Even getting hung up on your own, for that matter. Um, my favorite illustration of this is C.S. Lewis from the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You know, at the very end of that book, uh, Lucy and Edmund find out that this is their last time to Narnia. And they get very upset about it. And they, and they cry to Aslan and ask him, why, why, why is it that we can't come back? Here's what he says. He says, do you really need to know that child? I only tell people their own stories. Now look, why would that be the case? I think it's the case. Because whenever someone begins to fret over their standing before God, to even show any concern that we might not be on the same page, it is absolute evidence that the Spirit of God is not finished with them at that point. Why? Well, here's why. Because election 
is not a compliment to you. <laughs> the Bible says that your situation in sin is such that were, it's not for, were it not for His moving, you wouldn't even have those thoughts. So the response to someone that comes to you is like, I'm not sure, I'm struggling. My response is, well, okay, go find Jesus in all the places He said He would be found. In reading His Word, in praying to Him, in gathering among His people where He said He would dwell. That's the message. You wouldn't have those thoughts if He wasn't working. That brings me to the second blessing. The first one is the the only place you'll get assurance. But the second place is the only place you're going to get holiness. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. (laughs) But I think predestination has a way of creating it in a way in which nothing else can. Which is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because in your mind you think to yourself, wait, wait, wait. If I knew that God's love was guaranteed, I would presume upon it, right? But look what it says in verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. The whole point of election is to change you. But how does it do it? Here's the answer. Because it roots out from your heart the rot that is causing ungodliness. That's my premise. What rot are you referring to? Let's let's take a couple. Number one, it roots out self-hatred, doesn't it? I mean, how? It shows us a love that is its own rationale. You can't lose it. It's infallible. It roots out, secondly, self-conceit. Why are you a Christian? I know. Isn't it crazy? Who would have thought? Me. Is there, because it comes and gives it all of grace. You can't be self-conceited. Thirdly, it roots out self-pity, doesn't it? A person who knows that salvation is completely by grace doesn't feel sorry for themselves. Because the value of knowing that, it overcomes those fears. I was talking to a pastor one time, no less, who was saying, well, you know what? I really don't preach assurance to my congregation very much. Because honestly, my people, they know the gospel. They got that down pat. Their problem is they are not holy. They're presumptuous Christians. And therefore, I need to let them have it with what that thing requires. I said, well, I respectfully disagree. Not with the Bible's insistence that God's people be transformed into holy people. I disagree with your methods. (laughs) Because the more assured you are as a person, the more loved you know that you are. And I only learn to love when I know how deeply loved I am. And when I deeply love, I will always be transformed into the image of the object of my affection. It's how we work in anything. The Apostle John put it really nicely and carefully when he said, we love because he first loved us. The whole presumptuous Christian thing is just a misnomer. What they've missed is the power of grace that they still want to hold on in their pride to one last little thing that made my salvation mine, which was my choice. Because if it was my choice, I still got something on you, God. You owe me salvation. That just doesn't sound right, does it? No, no, Paul is thrilled because he is known, deeply known, before he ever knew anything. I was trying to figure out a way to end this sermon, and I, I honestly thought it might even be best just to, to speak very personally about my own life. There is nothing that has contributed more to my own sanctification than the knowledge of this doctrine. Now, you did not hear me just say that I've gotten so holy since I learned it. That has not happened. The truth is, though, I I am continually astounded at how many times he's come after me. 
There is no reason for me to still be standing here. I don't feel like I'm a better Christian, quite honestly. But I tell you what, I'm a whole lot more aware of my need than I ever was many years ago. And so here's my question. How could that ever happen if he wasn't coming after me? Again and again and again. That contra-conditional love. And Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick, Captain Ahab is having a conversation with one of his carpenters. And Ahab has picked up a large vice, which the carpenter looks at him and says, be very careful with that vice, because once you get it on, it's actually powerful enough to break bones. Ahab says this. He says, no fear. I like a good grip. I like to feel something in this slippery world that can hold. The doctrine of predestination is something in this slippery world that can hold. Because as long as my salvation is sitting upon my efforts, my goodness, my proper prayers, it'll always be insecure. But if it rests in Him, then there's a security that I couldn't have known before and a love that won't let me go. Take that as an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we want to accept that invitation by coming and looking into it, by investigating it. Honestly, Father, there's few things that could be more unsettling than this idea that the world is run by you and we are your subjects. And there's lots of things we don't understand. You didn't give us all the information about how our choices fit in with your absolute sovereignty. But you told us about it for some reason, and we believe it's because you love us that you told us. So for that, we'll say thank you. And we'll learn to live in it and grasp after it and work towards it in the hopes that one day we will love in the way in which you've loved us. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.